Um, hi, welcome to episode six of One Book, One Film, One Song. Um, feels quite like six seems quite a lot to have done, doesn't it? I think we've done. Yeah, it's like um, it's like a see, it's like a series, you know, yeah. classic six episodes series. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So well done, well done, all our guests. Um, so this week we have Jasmine, who is a long-time friend of mine and an all-round interesting and very eloquent human being. Um, so I was excited to get her on and she absolutely meets, if not exceeds, my excitement. Yeah. yeah. She's yeah, so definitely. interesting, isn't she? Yeah, it's a it's a, a really good chat about kind of just the, what mental health is looking like in the mm-hmm. UK at the minute, um, along with some other stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's really interesting. She's, yeah, and she's got a lot of great ideas and a lot of, um, a lot of good energy, good passion and energy. And some hip hop, which I don't think we've had yet, have we? On... No, no, we haven't. Yeah, it's nice to get some hip hop in. It is, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah the choices, the choices are really good as well. Really yeah. nice choices. Yeah. yeah. So we can just fade into the interview. the interview, guys. <laughs> okay, so welcome to the pod. Uh, Jazz, nice to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me. Nice to see you as well, actually. We were just um, for the for the listeners who don't have the visual um, aid. We were just saying how lovely it looks where you are. Yeah, it's so super sunny. Well, nice. Been really good to get out of the city actually. Mm-hmm. And um, I think trees give you a bit of bre- breathing space for your brain, don't they? And yeah, and for the planet as well. They're the planet's lungs. <laughs> Literally. That and the coral. Yeah, Let's that's true. Coral. Yeah. What's left of it, unfortunately. Hey, yeah. I don't say that. Oh, this is already like a Sunday <laughs> evening episode. <Yeah. laughs> the trees are our lungs. The coral is dying. <laughs> We're oh. chopping everything down. Fine. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Just bleak. laughs> that's got that kind of... Um, I was watching Gogglebox earlier because I just felt a bit like watching rubbish telly and they had an Antiques Roadshow on. And I just <gasps> oh remember, my God. remember that feeling of like the Antiques Roadshow being on and like hearing the theme tune and it was like Sunday evening and you're like, oh, I've got to go to school tomorrow. And it's just like... <laughs> have, you heard, have you heard the drum and bass remix of the Antiques Roadshow <laughs> no. theme song? Because that, I stand that remix. Like, I am secretly obsessed with the Antiques Roadshow. It's like oh, my really? absolute happy mm. place. It's my happy place. I Oh my God. When they bring something on and then there's like a secret compartment the person that owned it never knew about and they open it and then there's a little letter from this like 16th century watchmaker. <laughs> oh my God, that shit. Nothing makes me happier, seriously. Nice. I like um, I like storage wars, you know, when they're like... Oh, oh yeah. The, um... <laughs> that fucking bitch with the, the fucking glasses. What's that? that ultimate Karen. Yeah. You know the woman I mean? <laughs> I know what <laughs> you mean, up. yeah. Uh, she'll just bid people up things just because they want it. Even if she doesn't want it, she's like, hey, we're going to get it. She's the worst. I don't know who that is. Who do we mean? And then know. they open the... You, they don't pay their shed locking fees, rent, whatever. Then they repossess all their shit and it all gets sold at like an instant auction. They're not allowed it? to, not and allowed it's to very look. American. Yeah, they're not allowed to look in it. They just have to like, they're not allowed to root around. They just have to like buy it from what they can just see from outside. 
So there might be some like hidden gems at right at the back. Right. That does actually sound right on my street. Yeah, also sounds a little good. bit like my flat. <laughs> they're really good at knowing if it's like a quad bike under loads of plastic or a lawnmower. They just like, they know the shapes. Yeah. You do some revision before you went on for sure. Like some practice. Oh, oh it's their life, Charlie. They are yeah, professionals, Yeah, no, Charlie. sorry. <laughs> it's not a game sorry. show. <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. I've, I've been a bit flippant about it and I'm really sorry. <laughs> um wow we got off we got off on a tangent pretty quickly there um, <laughs> so do you do you want to introduce yourself a little bit Giles because you've been you've been doing and have done so uh, much yeah. it might be, be better coming from you all right um so yeah what do I do okay so I'm a community arts practitioner so that basically means that I've worked in lots of different community contexts from prison, people referral unit, children's home, um, children's centre, all different places, art gallery as well. Um, and basically made art with people um, as a means of kind of helping, well, supporting them through, supporting them through finding a language with which to express themselves or a way to spend some time doing something which is calming and soothing but also within that to kind of help them to bond with other members of the group or to kind of use art as like a means of disseminating personal narratives mm -hmm. um I think that when you make things even if you don't say why you're making something you put a bit of yourself into it whatever it is mm -hmm. and yeah. so in that way it can be really really healing for people that might be struggling or stressed or angry or anxious to kind of come together and making a space so yeah I like doing that working with people yeah collaborating yeah that sounds incredible suppose we'd better put out a disclaimer that um we are all old friends if we're on yes, our, our Manchester, our yes. Manchester mm -hmm. days um mm. you're not living in Manchester anymore are you Jazz? no I live in London now. I've gone back to my hometown and um yeah it's it's nice but it's weird but it's also very different as well like a lot of the areas I grew up in have changed a lot mm. I was walking down so I live the high street where I live now the area I lived there on an estate there till I was about nine it's called Nunhead and um now the high street <laughs> it's like bougie as fuck there's like these little delis and like grain-fed organic burger place and you can get a really nice iced coffee. And I was walking down there with a, a friend who didn't know the area years before. And I was like, and that used to be the post office and that used to be the wool shop. And that was a really good charity shop. And that post office actually got held up at knife point when my brother was seven. And that used to be, and this person was just like, really? Because now it just looks like fucking East Dulwich, which is like Chorwin, I guess, in Manchester. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. So you've got like this, and even like the local crackhead pub, which used to be like proper crackhead pub. Now they do like <laughs> vegan cake. It's just like, wow. <laughs> Gentrification. Yeah, this it's just um it's it's, London's just getting more and more like that. I suppose, what are the kind of, like, as someone who, you know, was in the community as a youngster and now seeing it change, what do you think the effects are of, like, that on the people? I, Have people been, like, priced out of the area that you grew oh up yeah. in? Yeah. Oh, yeah, massively. We were priced out of the house we lived in. The longest I've ever lived in one house. It was, like, nearly six years we lived there. And um, they wanted to sell, and the flat lower in our block had sold for, like nearly half a mil so they were just like bye 
did it up and out we were my mum's slowly moved further 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 out to the point Mm. now where she lives in the middle of nowhere in the countryside because for half of what she was paying in London Mm. she gets like five extra rooms but the thing is that's if you have the option to move you know she has a partner that has a car so they can access places you know drive Mm. to the shop all that if you're on the housing list in London now you're going to wait about eight years doesn't matter if you've got a kid it doesn't matter if you are a young person fleeing domestic violence it doesn't matter what the fuck is going on you will be made to wait and wait and when you do finally get somewhere if you're very lucky it will be out of London it'll be like Dartford you know so in this way like the communities of people that have lived in estates and housing places not they're not just getting priced out but they're they're actively being forced into homelessness yes and being told oh you could have this flat a million miles away from everyone and so yeah it's scary I mean yeah it's scary I mean I thought Manchester had well Manchester does have you know a real housing crisis when I was last there which was a couple of years ago um at one point there wasn't a single women only shower uh, you see having done youth and community work in the north and then coming to London that even though you know London has some really fucking deprived areas and you know there's a massive struggle there for a lot of people there's still a lot more money floating about. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot more funding floating about in charities. Mm-hmm. Whereas there are definitely areas of the North, especially rural communities um, that are, you know, deprived in terms of funding yeah. Yeah. and resources in a way that, you know, when I tell stories about the Emotional Behavioural Difficulty Centre, I was working at in Withinshaw, where one whole side of the building was derelict. You know, every single door on the left side of the corridor left to a broken collapsed part of the building and mm-hmm. there were holes in the roof so big that you had to put buckets out mm. you know and then where they're like hey yeah you can com- contribute actively to your community I'm going to empower you you can get your GCSEs you know but the but, environment's not telling them the same thing that that you are yeah yeah, yeah. exactly that's, that's like you know that's pretty much all the battle isn't it we can mm. yeah uh, so how how does how does a person you know, get involved in how does someone become a community arts practitioner? What was kind of your route to what you're what you're doing now? Okay, so it's kind of a funny one. So basically, um, how do I explain this? <laughs> so yeah, when I was about seven, it's kind of a long story, but basically when I was about 17, um, I had a really big breakdown. I had a psychotic episode um, that was really, really severe. You know, I went completely to the other side. Mm-hmm. I'm talking, hearing voices, messages from my iPhone, all of the kind of like psycho X tropes. Yeah, that was me fully. I completely lost my mind. I was walking around Brixton with no shoes on for like nearly two weeks. You know, it was it was yeah. a really, really funny, dark place to be. And previous to that, I'd, I'd always been a very, very angry person. I'd always held a massive chip on my shoulder. And that experience because the breakdown was so public, because I was at parties, in mm. parks, playing football, you know, still out and about, but clearly not there. Um, mm-hmm. When I came out of hospital, I found for the first time ever, like, humility. And I actually felt quite kind of small in a way. Mm-hmm. And, like, I needed to listen more than just speak all the time. It really kind of shocked me into grounding myself. And um, when I was in hospital, I'd kept a diary which was kind of like an essay and when I first came in it was kind of like words as big as the page like didn't really make sense but as I was getting better towards the end of my stay in the Maudsley uh, child and adolescent ward I was actually planning art activities for in the ward Mm -hmm. and I was organizing my own game of ice hockey where you wear your slipper socks 
and we use the lid off a big tub of moisturizer to play like ice hockey in the hallways of the mental health ward. Yeah, they loved it. They decided I needed to leave and I was well enough to go home. So when I came out, I basically, there were all these crazy rumors flying about about what had happened. So I basically got involved with a youth run publication in Brixton called Live Magazine, which was by and for young people. And I wrote an article there about bipolar disorder because that's mm-hmm. what I was diagnosed with, explaining what it can be like to have that illness. And mm-hmm. I just handed it out outside college. And that was kind of when I realized that nobody was really talking about mental health. Nobody understood it. We didn't have a language to describe it. We hadn't yeah. learned anything about it in school. The only thing we had was representations in like films, you know, or insults, schizo. Yeah. nut job you know psycho things like that yeah, yeah um yeah and then basically I ended up um seeing a call out for somebody who was wanting to make a piece of um radio actually with national prison radio and this guy had put this thing out and said I want to go and um, interview people with experience of hearing voices and um you know go into Brixton prison and work with the people there so I was like okay that sounds interesting and I met up with the guy and I was like, yeah, so saw your idea. I'm not going to lie. I think it's a bit pointless. What's the point in having this piece where people talk about what it was like to hear voices? And I'm in prison. I hear it. I go, yeah, me too. It's fucking shit. And that's that. Mm-hmm. Why don't you get someone to tell a story of recovery about what happened in the run up to them hearing voices, what it was like, and then how they've healed from that? You know, a story yeah. with a bit of hope in it. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, well, who, who will do that? And I was like, I'll do that. So... Me and this guy, who I owe a lot to, he's been my mentor ever since, really. Dr. Viv Huddy, he's called. Mm-hmm. We went into Brixton Prison. And um, I was 17. And yeah, we went in. And a really cool guy there, whose name, obviously, I can't tell you. <laughs> for legal reasons. But yeah, he, he interviewed me, basically, about my story of psychosis and my story of hearing voices. And um, at the end, him and, and Viv were actually both crying. <laughs> and I was kind of like, fuck, what's going on? And um, the guy said to me, he was like, right, you, he was like, I'm out in eight years, okay? And you need to promise me that you're going to go out and you're going to tell this story in schools, in colleges and to people because you've got a message that you need to spread and people need to hear it. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're not doing it in eight years, I'll come and find you. And I'm a convicted (laughs) criminal. (laughs) He was a top guy. But yeah, and then that kind of started my journey into advocacy. I'm wanting to to get people talking about it, not just when they're in crisis. Yeah. And not just the idea that mental health is something that affects some people some of the time, mm-hmm. but to look at it as like this sliding spectrum, you know, that we're that we're all on. So yeah. Long answer for a, for a simple question, but sorry. <laughs> no, brilliant answer. That's uh, that's amazing. Um, and I do think there's been a change. I noticed possibly in like the last five years that people are more aware of. Um, everyone having mental health in the same way that they have physical health. But I do think, like you're saying when you were 17, I do think um, it's a really recent kind of uh, development and it is a really positive one. But you are absolutely right. When we were, like, when I, so I would have just started uni then and there was no mm. language for saying, there's no language for saying, I can't even label this feeling that I'm having, let alone mm. communicate it to you mm. in a way that you're going to understand. And that was quite lo- like, I think people felt like mental health happened to like mm. someone else at the end of a, like a giant scale. And I do yeah. think 
it's because of people like you and it's because of people promote not only promoting dialogues but giving people the language or giving people um the confidence and ability to mm -hmm. label what they're feeling that we can now have it doesn't with no one we don't all just decide one day to start talking about it people have to be given the tools i think and do have to be given the tools to be able to speak about it yeah, well, yeah definitely and i also think there's actually a lot to be said for um social media spaces in in the way that kind of like say 20 years ago things that we talk about now and are in kind of common common dialogue dialect um things to do with like boundaries healthy relationships toxic relationships schemas coping strategies all of this stuff there's a lot of um, trained and qualified psychologists and also experts by experience mm -hmm. that have pages on things like Instagram where they share, you know, even, I can't remember her exact name. I think it's the holistic psychologist. She does this thing where it's like my immediate thought, my higher self. Yeah. And just things like that, that are allowing, you know, the everyday people that don't have to read a book this thick and go and study for six years to have the terminology and the kind of language and the ideas around kind of mental health and how it affects our relationships and our ability to work and self-care, you know, and it's become available, readily available to everyone. Yeah. Um, it's no longer kind of gatekeepered in, the, in these massive books, you know, in the DSM yeah. or whatever. And I think yeah. that's really important. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So talking of people who have... Um, you know, helped give language to, you know, people suffering with mental illness. Uh, what is your book and who's it by? I think that was... Mm. Okay, yeah, right. So my book. So my book is Hold Your Own by Kate Tempest. Mm -hmm. And um, when I was younger, I dated a boy for a bit whose older sister was going out with Kate Tempest for a while. So we used to go and watch her perform in like squat parties and mm -hmm. uh, like little little setups and things like that. And I just remember being absolutely fucking blown away by the way that she would cut through the room like fucking thunder mm -hmm. and just absolutely command silence, you know, mm -hmm. in her grey trackies, stood there just completely unapologetically. Like, whew, it was amazing. It was so potent. And so kind of to get her work in print, really did feel like a win for everybody in those rooms mm -hmm. yeah. this this girl from broccoli to to grow up and and to spread her message because what i think about k tempest what i love about her so much is the fact that she so so much of the time there are these stereotypes about working class people right that they are stupid that they are lazy that they are gullible you know and and there's this is such bullshit and i'm so sick of these stereotypes mm -hmm. and it's kind of given that there are like working class men who are intellects you know you have your like jarvis cocker black coffee and secondhand brogues but there wasn't really a space for women within this mm -hmm. And Kate Tempest, for me, she's like, you know, you can be from a council estate and be a fucking intellectual. You know, you can be dragged fucking up and you can read the entire Iliad. Like, intelligence is something that is only garnered through going to Oxford or, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Just bullshit. So really, really like the way that she rose to fame and rose to prominence, but it was completely uncompromising. Mm -hmm. And just her way with words, the way that she, you know, so visual and oh it's just beautiful and getting hold your own and reading those poems it, it felt so so intimate in a way you know also her kind of portrayal of uh and and like a discussion of like lesbian relationships and and love and confusion and oh yeah fucking potent shit 
I think she's incredible. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's that that kind of duality as well that I feel I've had a lot in my life in the sense of kind of, I might have had holes in my shoes and been cast having holes in my tights. I like tried to glue my shoes together one day um, in DT with a hot glue gun. Don't recommend that. But I also kind of had my gran um, and saw that you can grow up in a really shitty bit of Liverpool and still go and see the world. And kind of yeah. Kate Tempest for me kind of embraces that duality. You know, the fact that she's like this tough, you know, London girl, but also an incredible poet, like a fucking visionary. Mm-hmm. Half yeah. screw face half like dictionary that's that's how I describe myself and I, I see that in her work you know and I love that yeah, yeah it's really lovely choice um I haven't actually I haven't have you have you read it Charlie I haven't read it but I've I've listened to it's the whole you know there's like a performance of her doing hold your own jazz there's like a video of her is that in the book in print or is that like totally yeah different? so yeah no, 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 it will be, it will be. I love watching her stuff live, um, or like videos of her live. I think Icarus as well is, is that was one of the things that really stole me when I, when I first yeah. watched that. But yeah, no, incredible, incredible. And just the fact that she's it, like, go on. I saw her at Blue Dot last year, and it was like this a kind of that thing that you said struck me as well, that it was like this woman on a stage, and there's so many people there, and it's like, this amazing space and then it was just silent like she does command she makes you listen doesn't she and it's what is nice is was yeah. brilliant about it as well as the things she's saying aren't comfortable the mm-hmm. things she's saying mm-hmm. aren't like not like like a twee like little poem is it kind of yeah. thing like yeah it's, it's visceral you feel it when you listen to it and it's oh, uncomfortable yeah. and she's not saying things that people want to hear but still everyone's captured and everyone stays yeah. and everyone's listening. And it was really, it was powerful. I think you described it really like perfectly. She's got this line in um, uh, new, Brand New Ancients where she talks about the like wino guy and the old lonely man on the bench being our heroes. And I, mm. I really fucking like that. You know, that feeling, I think we probably all had it where you're in a Weatherspoons really early on like a Sunday morning getting your brekkie. And you look around and you realise that pretty much every table has got like a solitary old man on. Mm-hmm. And you think like, you know, how did they get here? Like, what, what are their stories, you know? And, and I always remember just wishing they'd all just sit on one table together. Yeah. And have breakfast <laughs> together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I always, that that's so funny I always feel that but then I'm definitely we've said this before I'm definitely projecting what I would want in that situation <laughs> but actually you don't have to sit on the same table all together like probably just want a bit of space and just no, to be on it's there. like our overdrive <laughs> empath drive isn't yeah. it it's like just yeah. come together guys come on let's have a chat then we push you all know. the tables and spoons together and we'll communally <laughs> Imagine yeah, if spoons yeah, became like spoons. a Wagamama's, like, Wagamama's <laughs> vibe, God. communally. Well, and... I'm sad enough that uh, one of the biggest funders of the Tory party is just like, ah, all these working class institutions, Warburton's, Spoons. Yeah. Warburton's? Ah. Oh, God. Yeah. You're not telling me Warburton's are. Crumbits uh. have lost the good flavour. Not Warburton. Taste the Tory. <laughs> Any, not the Warburton. Good. The, crump, <laughs> the crumpets, you know, you, you get own brand crumpets, they are just rubbish just, compared to Warburton's. There's no point. It's just yeah. no point. Gross. 
<laughs> but now they tasted Brexit, so. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> They've been tainted. Have you had your breakfast Brexit? <laughs> you smell of Brexit, mate. What did you have for breakfast? Crumpet. <laughs> oh, God. So how do you think then, Jazz, it's kind of... Um, I kind of influenced you. I think I can definitely, I love that kind of affinity you feel, but do you think you kind of, what do you think you took, what have you kind of taken from it or like how has it influenced you to be where you are now? So I think it's the idea that the the everyday is wonderful in the sense that Mm -hmm. like the everyday person is incredible within themselves and that you actually do anything that you want you just have to realize your own capacity, realize your own potential and rest in between. And in a way, what I mean is the idea that like everybody can be an activist. You know, if there's something that you care about, that you feel passionate about, something that makes you angry, you don't have to wait for other people to get behind you to say, Mm -hmm. hey, guys, we need to fucking sort this out, you know? And when in Kate Tempest's work, she celebrates and kind of exemplifies the beauty of everyday moments whether it be like a shared cigarette with with a friend while you look over the balcony Mm -hmm. or, you know, Icarus too high to the sun and his feathers melting. The way that her work shows the kind of golden light, that that golden light of being content in in everyday moments. Mm -hmm. And that kind of really, really empowered me and really led me to kind of see that, you know, if we work together and we support each other, then, you know, we can really accomplish amazing things. Yeah. And that is when we recognise the humanity in everybody, you know. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I think her work, you can tell that she's the kind of person that will talk to anyone. Yeah. And I feel like mm-hmm. that's the way I was brought up, you mm-hmm. know. Like, I have lots of different friends. Some of them might be 70, 60. Some of them might be eight years old. And they're all people whose company I value, people who show me things or tell me things that, you know, make my life richer. Yeah. And that's it. It's in the fact that everybody is is truly equal, you know, is truly equal and truly has something to offer. That is the the very core, the very crux of all the work I have ever done mm-hmm. and, and seek to do is the idea that I don't have anything new for you. But together we can create a dialogue. Together we can create an understanding or or help each other to understand two very different viewpoints. And through that, that compassionate collaboration you know communities can heal it's Mm -hmm. it's empowerment it's empowerment yeah and I think the thing you said about um kind of find like finding something in an everyday is kind of linked to that to what you've always always said to me about like there's a the process of working with someone the process of making something is as important as that like end end place you get and that is so key to your practice and I know like with Wednesday's child that's the essence of it isn't it it's not about going and like well I mean everything is a masterpiece but it's not about going and like suddenly being the best like making the Mm. best scene that's ever existed in the whole world it's about like going and like spending some time in that moment with the process and finding some enjoyment in like being there and kind of healing and reflecting through that rather than making this end thing that mm. is making you feel good because there's, there's not mm. yeah. you know there's not really as much value in that I think you I don't know I think that's definitely something I've learned from you Jazz um it might be a good t- do you want to tell us a bit more about Wednesday's child because I know you just mentioned it Charlie yeah um yeah sure so what I wanted to do with Wednesday's child basically 
basically was create workshops that anybody can come to that are accessible, um, inclusive workshops that are either free or donations based Mm -hmm. where people can kind of get together and create a space for dialogue about our experiences, whether they're unusual experiences or experiences that we encounter a lot. And to kind of shatter the, the, the solely medicalized view of mental health mm-hmm. and instead make it about people kind of coming together in a space and creating. And while you're creating, you're either kind of putting some of your story into it or it might be a break from your story. Mm-hmm. It might be a chance. You know, we say that busy hands let brains breathe. Mm-hmm. and just the actual joy of being lost in like a sensory craft and the way that people who were strangers will kind of come together over glue sticks or sharing scissors and kind of bond and create this safe space mm-hmm. so yeah Wednesday's Child is just all about kind of the idea that to make art you have to be an artist to make art and instead looking at art as kind of like um, a language and yeah something which when we forget about the aesthetic and the idea that it's a product or something you sell or hang in a gallery see it as like a vehicle mm-hmm. um it's all about self-care in a non-commercial um, sense mm-hmm. self-care that is completely free completely um within you and creating like a toolkit for resiliency that people can come together and share coping strategies and then go away and spread them you know within mm-hmm. their, their circles their friends or their family and um, one of the things that we do with every session is the idea that you will have something to take away and take home, but that that will be a resource that you've created individual to you um, that will be visual um, and that you've spent some time making. But it's all about your ways to look after yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, basically helping people to become resilient and kind of self-reliant with a, a compassionate view to themselves. So that if we're individually kind of keeping our ship sailing, then we have time to help each other scrub down the deck, you know? Yeah. Initially, it was every other month. And then we've had a bit of a pause now as I've been doing some training, um, getting some more qualifications under my belt so that I can access more spaces with it because I Mm -hmm. want to go into institutions as well. Currently, we've done them mainly in community spaces, um, you know, art galleries, or like shared spaces. Um, We did one in the uh, Manchester School of Art, um, things like that, but I wanna be going into... And you did one in Nottingham as well, didn't you? Yeah, that was the most recent one we did actually, that was in a lovely gallery in Nottingham um, as part of an exhibition they had, which was all about mental health. Um, That was lovely as well because the youngest participant was 10 and the eldest was like 72. Amazing. It it was just, yeah, wicked to all come together like that. Yeah. Because I remember you talking quite a lot as well, Jazz, when you used to um, be at um, the Whitworth Gallery and kind of doing this, um, the the work with children and kind of about having the confidence to create. So like some families, some children come in and the kids really confident with whatever materials are there. The mum's really confident and they're just getting on but not everyone has been taught that they what they create will have something of value mm-hmm. to them. And so it's about, I think, your workshops as well, isn't it, kind of creating confidence in making things and like being creative because some people feel like it's like a something that for other people to do or a space mm-hmm. that they don't belong in. And I think a lot of the stuff that you've done as well, isn't it, is about kind of making people, and like when you in, uh, well, ARC as well, 
and doing groups with it was with women there wasn't it I think it's yeah, always yeah. been about making it accessible as mm. well as kind of teaching people to do it for themselves yeah definitely and and also the ways in which so many institutions can be so intimidating you know if you aren't someone who's been brought up going to galleries or museums and you step into these echoey marble chambers you don't feel like they 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 are for you you know even last year I took a a young girl who's essentially my little sister and we went to see the William Blake exhibition um and after about 15 minutes she she whispered in my ear she was like I don't like it it's so quiet Mm -hmm. it makes me feel weird you know and she's someone who's grown up surrounded by art you know her mum is a, a practicing artist tattoo artist you know she's very confident at making things but the space felt suffocating to her Mm -hmm. so we went out the back of the Tate and had a little screaming break and um did some like jumping about for a bit you know and I think this is something that galleries don't realize in the same way that so many institutions don't realize you can't just put something in a community and call it community art yeah you can't just get a Hepworth and dump it in a state and Burnley and go oh yes community art that's Mm. not how it works you know even there are so People many things to like in this. Bad. For example, the na- yeah, exactly. It needs to be relevant. It needs to be something which is part of that community's culture. You know, yeah. I remember we were taught at, on one module on my degree, and they were saying um, BAME communities are not engaging with cultural art institutions. This this group of people are not engaging with cultural art institutions. Da da da. And I remember just sitting there and being like, okay, so if the cultural art institutions we're talking about are the galleries like the Tate or even the Whitworth you know and these are galleries full mainly of art by dead white men Mm -hmm. Um, every now and then there might be an edgy piece by a not dead white woman Um, and then you're saying that people aren't going to them well yeah maybe they're not but are they going to the West Indian Centre do they go to carnival Mm -hmm. do they dance every Sunday you know did they did hordes of people queue up to see Errol Dunkley at the West West African and Caribbean Centre, like mm. West Indian and Caribbean Centre. Yes, they did. Yeah. And it's mm. the way that data is collected um, and then put into practice as how we can make people engage with the arts. It's, it's, it's the same way that, you know, political parties will engage with communities. Every two weeks, the caseworker will have an open day where people can have an appointment and come and mm. sit. And this guy can decide how best to alleviate their issues. What about if he went every day into their community and listened to them instead of making them queue up and come to him? Yeah. And I feel like arts engagement in the UK is still like that, you know. Why is the onus on the person to get engaged? Why are spaces not being more engaging or finding ways? You know, as practitioners, it's always like, you're not engaging this person. You're not engaging this family. What can you differently mm. and I don't want like the structure in terms of society that stops and it becomes the, the problem of the people who aren't going mm. <laughs> rather than mm. the if like if there was you know if it was a business or if it was like a cafe or a shop they'd have to say to yeah. them like why aren't people coming in what can we do differently so why do our art galleries why do our museums mm. not have to, I mean I'm sure they have to to an extent but there's a big kind of structural issue in terms of even how they look when you get there isn't, isn't there I think it, yeah yeah well even the even the Whitworth they, they said that their answer to the lack of diversity um was to build a door facing Hume <laughs> so they built like a separate door basically like yeah come in it's like what 
so strange. I even remember. Yeah, like, here's the humidor, come in. But I remember after like a few weeks working at the Whitworth, because we had a massive space, you know, Rush Home is there, Humor's there, Mossad yeah. is there, there's a children's centre there, there's a women's refuge there, there's a sanctuary there. Why are we doing no outreach? Yeah. You know, we have free art sessions all day, several days a week at that time. And yet it's the same Titus and Arabella that are, that are coming, you know, and of course they should use those spaces and it's great. But there was just such a lack of diversity there. Um, and that was something that we did address, actually, um, that, that um, I felt needed to be addressed. And it, and it has, actually was taken on board. People think you just open something and everyone knows it's there, but that's not, that's not how it works. No. I feel like people have forgotten the meaning of the word outreach. Yeah. Well, people didn't have the money for outreach was, has, was cut, wasn't it? So I think yeah, in terms of like youth outreach, there was less jobs. Mm. People couldn't afford to have like a youth outreach coordinator as part of their space anymore. I think the job itself, mm. it has existed previously, but I think it was, they're the first things to go, which seems so, <laughs> seems to kind of, you're like cutting mm. the reason that this that is there in the first place. But I think the thing that has been, well, and if you lose the outreach, then you lose people knowing that that kind of, that creativity exists and then you get less people doing it and so you just end up with kind of people not knowing that they would have the mm. capacity to make those things which is sad isn't it we end up losing as a society i think yeah also and some... if, if they can't sorry uh, jazz but yeah if they can't if they don't know that place is there and they don't know that they can access it and for them so those those kind of things you're talking about earlier jazz of like you know creating something or just the process of doing it can help people's mental health then you know would like we are seeing mental health is going to become a lot more prevalent in our society because people can't access the flipping things that should be there to help them for their well-being broken yeah the link's just broke yeah i was recently part of a funding bid put together with several different bodies and the university of sheffield where we were basically uh they did a smaller study group where they rolled out a new type of therapy called method of levels and this therapy is really really powerful it's incredible um it basically in a nutshell breaks down that dichotomy that we currently see in routine nhs mental health care whereby you have the clinician or the therapist who is the person who you from your mental distress with all of these highly intellectual and very complicated methods mm -hmm. and you are the patient bereft of the knowledge to save yourself and every session will have like a predicated goal. You'll have a certain amount. This is in NHS routine care. Every session will have a goal that is set beforehand. You will have a, a number of sessions over weeks, which has been decided beforehand. Mm -hmm. And the therapist is to get you to a point where they can say that you've addressed things. Yeah. And if you miss an appointment or don't want to talk about certain things, this is seen as you're not, not engaging. actively engaging. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas method of levels is all about the idea, this crazy revolutionary idea, that we actually listen to people and let them lead the session, let them decide how yeah. often or how long they want it to go on for. So we put together this, they did a small study. It was, it was great. Everybody loved it. In East London, um, the research came back, the data came back really good. I listened to, they felt they had agency. And so we wanted to roll it out in several more inpatient acute adult mental health facilities and the, the bid was rejected and it's just things like that that you know and it was rejected under the grounds that we couldn't do a big enough study 
with the amount of money they wanted to give us. So it's kind of like you're locked into a box. Yeah. Where they're like, this sounds good, <laughs> but we're more. not going to pay for you to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I also that's think it. With, with, with like the NHS uh, mental health um, stuff as well, everything's got to, like, you know, their first primary thing, if you call up and, you know, you go to a wellbeing centre, you always get offered to see like a psychological wellbeing practitioner, which is just, basically a CBT therapist who hasn't qualified yet or mm-hmm. you get offered CBT and that's like pretty much not I'm sure like this isn't an exact mm-hmm. number but I'm sure like 90% of people get offered CBT and like yeah CBT is great but it's not fucking everyone mm-hmm. you know what I mean mm-hmm. but the reason the reason mm-hmm. they offer it out to everyone is because it's so measurable like yeah. The, yeah. the result the results can be easily measured so they can be like look this is working whereas stuff like you know you're talking about methods of level and kind of um other, other kind of like forms of counseling like transactional mm. analysis and like mm. um you know all those things it's not measurable someone could be going mm. to therapy for years and you know and st- still be depressed but they feel figured out some of their mm. process or whatever yeah um mm. which is gonna help them in the long run so it's just yeah it's it's just in that kind of bureaucracy of just like everything needs to be done properly mm. to be able to tick the boxes and it's actually forgetting like you know the, the core, human. yeah the core of like human suffering and just people just yeah like you said just wanting to be listened to basically. i think as well what scares me is the amount of stuff that's now online um mm. you know i know so many people that have done like online counseling workshops and mm. online this click through 10 slides and you know how to treat your depression and yeah well, that yeah. really scares me and I guess Wednesday's child is like indirect kind of remedy to that the idea that you know it's about people in a room in a space um and and the beauty of actually sharing a space and and of actually uh communicating face to face because um, when you're suffering in distress it can be so isolating yeah you know or when you're suffering even in a thing like um intense what's the word for it I've completely forgotten the word disassociation for example yeah you're intensely disassociating and you're told to go and have an online mindfulness group yeah that's not gonna be yeah 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 it's really really not it's really not and you were in a you were in a um contributed to a book as well, didn't you, Jasmine, about that kind of model that the NHS were using now and kind of being a bit more aspirational in terms of what that could look like and how that could be more supportive. Um and I can remember that coming, I can remember you showing me your like words and name in print as well. So I would like to hear a tiny bit about that and what happened with that, because that was literally such a powerful <laughs> moment as well, wasn't it? It was so good. Yeah, I was. I was like, wow. Or still wait. Um, <laughs> on the map. No, I'm joking. So yeah, actually, the method of levels is something that was developed by the same guy, Dr. Tim Carey. He's got lots of fancy letters before his name that means he's very clever. But um, but yeah, so basically, I got contacted and they said, um, "Would this is the thing?" Right, let me start at the beginning. Sorry. <clears throat> so I've got something that the mental health world love in terms of like clinicians because I have a coherent narrative of psychosis which means that I've like fully lost it to the point where they're like whoa but then I've come back and that I actually remember the majority of it yeah and I'm able to like share that and explain what that's like so I'm kind of like a nice little guinea pig that they, they like to roll out sometimes but basically Tim Carey's book is all about the ways in which 
health structures, um, public health structures can be really disempowering. Mm -hmm. So he uh, took case studies from lots of different people, um, mental health, physical health, the parents of intersex children, all different um, families and communities that felt that their agency had been removed from them and decisions had been made uh, and enforced onto them. And he was basically writing about how we can change the model of practice and make it individualized and make it holistic. And so yeah. I contributed to a chapter of that where I basically just wrote explain about- explain holistic jazz, just because I think yeah, so we know what it is, but maybe. <clears throat> holistic, the word holistic, when I'm using it, I basically mean uh, an, in, an entire human-centered approach mm -hmm. whereby different aspects of your well-being, whether that be the way you think about yourself, the way your body feels, um, the, the experience you have of pain or any like physical, mental um, being and something which encapsulates all of that and will work to, to care for it, basically. Mm. And it can holistic can also be something which might not necessarily be related uh, initially to health. Mm -hmm. So holistic practices can include things like gardening or dancing mm. or singing really loudly in the shower. These can be little things that we can do and look at your environment as like the whole person as well yeah so it's like you yeah, in the yeah. context which is really yeah, important yeah, yeah. different and how you respond to your environment and mm. how your environment can kind of squish you or lift you in yeah. a simple way squish or lift. but yeah so <laughs> squish or lift yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry so then um you're part of it. And do you want to say a little bit about like what you what you said or your section or are you? Yeah, no, I think it was oh, you just got to buy the book. Like, yeah, you gotta buy it. Apparently it's 120. Yeah, looked, yeah, oh, yeah, today. yeah, it is. Because <laughs> it's like an academic text. I know. Yeah. Right. I got a copy for free, but just one. It was good that I got that actually, because somebody else wrote a chapter in their book about me and she wouldn't give me a copy. No. Oh. Anyway. Yeah, right, Olivia. I see you, Olivia. Um, <laughs> What's the opposite of a shout-out? Yeah. Yeah. Call out. A drag, it's a call-out. Dragging you and your book about people with mental illness using creativity to cope. Anyway, um, yeah, so I was basically just writing about the way that the, the system needs to be empowering. It comes mm -hmm. back to that again and see people as individuals and the way that a diagnosis is not a box. It's not a capsule that you fit into. You know, my diagnosis is a huge umbrella term. You know, bipolar mm -hmm. with psychotic tendencies, that is a huge umbrella term. Mm -hmm. And everybody with that diagnosis might have completely different ways of experiencing the world. Yeah. Completely different ways of experiencing their symptoms. And until we recognize that individuals need different things, need different means, like you were saying, Sam, of talking about their feelings through therapy yeah. or of you know, centering themselves and grounding themselves, then, then people are just going to continue to resist seeking help. Yeah. Um, and I think that is so common. You know, so many people later down in the line, you know, might, might look back and go, I was really fucking depressed in my 20s, but I didn't know how to seek help. Yeah. And so many of the kind of horror stories we hear. Um, I mean, only me the, the other week, I was, um, I've been referred to my local mental health services and a woman rung me and told me 
um, on the phone. That's something I went through recently, which was heinously traumatic and, you know, will probably be triggering for the rest of my life. She basically said, oh, yeah, well, you've just got to live with that, haven't you? And then told me that there was nothing, um, no support for me in the area. She's emailed me a really long, confusing list of local groups in like churches and online CBT groups. And then at the bottom of the email, she's written, and don't hesitate to ask your GP to refer you to us if you need any support in the future. And I'm there thinking, I'm okay today. You know, I have a really strong support network. I have a lot of people that I can rely on um, and a lot of coping strategies that I have within me now, the resilience to enact, you know. But a few years ago, I might not have been. You know, and there are so many people that aren't. Yeah. And yeah, you're told, oh, well, why aren't you seeking help? And then you try and seek help and you're like, oh, what is this? You yeah. Know? I'm not ill enough. I'm not sick enough. Yeah. Uh, until you're on death's door and can get a ward in a in an inpatient facility, a lot of people won't actually even get diagnosed. Yeah. You know, so I'm almost lucky that I had that at 17 because it's been a lot easier to muddle through life knowing that I have bipolar and what that means yeah than it was prior to that trying yeah. to kind of understand myself and my, and my behavior and my moods yeah yeah completely um uh should we talk a bit about your film um do you want to yeah. let us know what <laughs> yeah it's a lovely one. <laughs> oh my god so when I, me and my mom used to have um these little movie nights basically Hang on, say what, show me. what is the film? Oh, sorry, it's, it's Pretty in Pink by John Hughes. <laughs> yeah. Pretty in Pink. So lovely. Oh, it's lovely an absolute one. dream. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, me and my mum used to have these movie nights and she used to show me her favourite films that they would watch when she was in her ballet boarding school that she got a scholarship from because she's the only person that applied in the entire region of Wales for the dance scholarship in the 80s. But yeah, it's an incredible film. Um, it celebrates the weirdo. It celebrates the the people that don't fit in in school and mm-hmm. the fact that they're actually always the coolest, way better. Um, <laughs> it's also kind of about her learning to get rid of the chip on her shoulder because she was poor. Yeah, And I feel like that's something I'm <clears throat> actively always working to ensure I do as well because there's this whole scene basically where she gets ignored by the posh boy because he's with his posh friends, even though they're kind of snogging. And she's like absolutely mortified. And then she realises that her and all her friends hating all the posh kids is as bad as all the posh kids hating them because they're poor. But no, it's just sick. It's got one of the best scenes in cinema ever where um, John Cryer's character, he's called Ducky and he's like, it's just, oh, he's just, oh my God, I loved him so much. I would never admit it, but I loved him so much. <laughs> he wears like the craziest clothes and there's this scene where he goes into the record shop that um, her best friend, her Andy, the main character, played by Molly Ringwald, best friend owns. And the doorbell rings and Otis Redding, Try Little Tenderless comes on. And yeah. he just does this. Oh my, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? It is it's amazing. Like PVC corsets. And that scene where she like shoots the staple gun at the little boy that's stealing tapes. And he's like, you, you only just missed my ear by an inch. And she's like, half an inch, honey. I just <laughs> loved her energy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was sick. 
And also, oh, I could literally talk about forever, but the clothes, like the the awkward party scene. Yeah. Like, oh, it's just, it's tough. It's tough. And I she's got a really seen nice it. I'm going to I'm gonna have to watch it. Have you not seen it? it. No. I, it's, it seems Are weird. Are you indie if you haven't seen <laughs> that I, I, film? I know. That's what you I was confused you. about. Old title has just been stripped from you. <laughs> <laughs> I, know. I know. I was a bit disappointed in myself. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> this film looks like exactly the kind of film that I would have watched. Even Charlie's um, seen it. <laughs> even you've, you've seen it. You've got to watch it. Yeah. You've got to watch it. You're not allowed to get married till you've watched it, all right? All right, okay. I'll watch it tonight. Something it looks happens. like a good Sunday night film. So yeah, I'm yeah. an ideal Sunday night film. I get a takeaway after this and watch it. Oh, yeah. Do it. <laughs> it used to make me angry, though, that she didn't just marry Ducky because he's clearly the best. So, like, so the weirdo win- doesn't win in the end? Is that the No. That the, oh, no. No, she goes off with Blaine. Blaine. Is he a household appliance? <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> I, kind of, I kind of admire that in it. Away in in the writing that you know it's not it's mm. not it's not the ending that everyone wants by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah, just like life, eh? Exactly, wow. and that's how it's influenced me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember as well watching it and just um, because we, my, me and my sisters always used to watch it. Yes, and, and that and kind of it was like her. That end that thing where because she, she makes her own dress, doesn't she, for the prom? And yeah. I can remember thinking like it just kind of. I think I was a teenager, and it was like, all right, well, so she has found this problem. She's found this way of like that she isn't fitting in, and she's just sorted it herself. Like she had the resource within her to sort it out. She doesn't like end up being like saved by anyone, does she? Mm-hmm. She's just mm-hmm. like, right, well, I haven't got a dress that I like, so guess I'll just make myself one and I fix this problem and I remember really liking that because if you think about lots of the um like rom-coms that are around at the time more modern ones it's always like sad lady works too much man comes along and teaches her that she can't just work or like I don't know lady's a bit lost meets a businessman and I think I really liked it that she was she's the hero for herself isn't she as well so yeah it sounds like a sounds like a, a wicked film and I will watch um have you been doing some trade have you been training people jazz have you been like training nhs services yeah so this was ages ago that was when i was like 18 oh wow i um worked with a group of 50 nhs child and adolescent mental health service workers and school nurses and we basically me and another girl who funnily enough i actually went to school with but we didn't know each other in the in between years and worked in there and went and did a big workshop basically and got them to think about the ways that their body language affects how young people respond to them. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was really, it was really good. But no, at the minute I'm training myself. So I'm getting my qualification in youth work, community mm-hmm. youth work, because all my qualifications thus far are like arts based. Yeah. So I want to get that hardcore paper. Um, that says community and youth tie all the pieces together yeah exactly into a nice exactly. little neat little package yeah that sounds good mm. well, it's oh. good. i've been at new horizons youth center um in camden doing a placement just before until lockdown when it's shut now that's a center for young people experiencing homelessness mm-hmm. um and it's incredible i remember when i walked into it i was like whoa it's amazing. We've got hot showers, laundry facilities, 
open kitchen um, with hot food served every day. And it's an open door policy. So anyone, anyone that hears about it can come in. And some people come for years and some people come for weeks. And um, it's just the atmosphere there as well. It's so positive and like vibrant. Yeah. So many people. Agreed. Um, should we talk about your song, Jasmine? Oh, my song. <laughs> my favourite song. Okay, so, so... we had a bit my... of a battle, didn't we, with this? Because Jazz actually really hates rules and really hates when I try and impose any kind of structure <laughs> on anything. So what, it's been a real discussion. <laughs> and me being I'm like, sorry. Oh, just remember, just remember it one song. And then I felt like I was like being disempowering, like trying to impose this podcast structure on like jazz, hindering all the, like this, hindering her creativity, her freedom oh of expression. God. And I was like, no, Charlie, it's just a podcast. And it is one song. She's just so got to do it. Just do it. <laughs> Just choose one song, Jasmine. So what we, what we thought is we'll say your song and then you can do, you can have your honourable mentions, can't you, for the other ones. That was, that's our compromise. <laughs> oh, God. All right, so my song is Counselor State of Mind by Skinny Man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I chose that song because discovering UK hip-hop um, in like my first year of secondary school was hugely transformative for me. Um, I felt like I'd found something really sacred. And, you know, from Skinny Man, I then found Task Force and hearing like Cosmic Gypsies for the first time. And then a bit later, finding like Black Star and the song Respiration. I was just like, whoa. Um, and like, of course, Jest as well, England, like that needs to mention. Uh, you know, he mentions Catford in that song. And I just remember being like, whoa, what? Catford's an absolute shithole and it still is and I stand by that but um oh, yeah trendy it, now, like it just Catford. transported me like hip-hop transported me to... don't say that bloody hell <laughs> that's mad that's mad <laughs> but yeah then it was not and all I knew of Catford anyway I won't say that that's what I didn't want to talk about okay. anyway <laughs> but yeah you know and and it was just the way that it it inwove all these different elements together I felt like hip-hop encapsulated all of the bits of me that I felt didn't stick together properly mm-hmm. kind of all the stuff that felt discordant or unutterable in like my scratchy girls school uniform mm-hmm. and I like absolutely just fell in love with it you know I fell in love with like the thug poet Nas and it made me feel safe and it made all the different bits of me like kind of ugly insane chaotic loose cannon jasmine I felt properly understood yeah by like these baritone voices and the way that it would be like the, the the complex metaphors, the crazy rhyme structures and patterns, the references to literature, art, history, you know, the way that it made me feel that I wasn't the first person by any means that had felt like squished by the city they lived in. Yeah. And it felt like they were literally choking on that, like that smog. Mm. Um, I was like, I was very, very angry. And it, it also kind of gave me a, a vehicle for that, you know, yeah. like a space. Where it's like, yeah, it's okay to want to smash your classroom up. It's okay to be really fucking angry, but actually look at this beauty. Mm-hmm. Look at look at the everyday. Like there's this lyric in Respiration, which is like blasting holes in the night till she bled sunshine. And I just things like that, you know, just those the way that it encapsulates that 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 soft, liquid, smooth sensuality of a city, but also the way that it can be really guttural and you can mm-hmm. be really squished. Mm. So it, yeah, it it totally, yeah, it totally shook me, you know, and, and gripped me, and was definitely my first love. And 
I I owe so much of my creativity to to hip hop and yeah. to the, the metaphors it showed me and the way of looking at the world that it showed me. And I'm also in complete and utter recognition of how my white privilege, the fact that I'm a white woman, has shaped my life for the better. Yeah. Because being hospitalized, where because I was a white girl, I was let I was let scot free, you know. Yeah. And I know that there was a long period of my life where the attitude I had and the outlook I had, if I had been black, I would not have been treated the same way. Yeah. So yeah, I owe a lot to it. And I know that it's not made for me necessarily at all. But that's why I chose Skinny Man, because it was that like UK sound, raw and raspy, um, that, yeah, I was like, yeah, this is it. More speaking, yeah. this. So yeah, I love, I love hip hop so much. Wow, that was so, that was so wonderfully put. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was amazing. That, that, feel, that feels like a perfect point to kind of and draw the conversation to an end. What do you, That's yeah. what I feel. Jazzy, is there anything else that you want to speak about? Is there anything else you feel like you we haven't spoken about? Um, yeah, I think I just want to say that Black Lives still matter. They matter mm-hmm. today. They matter 20 years ago. They matter 40 years ago. And they'll matter yeah. every day. Um, and that it's not a trend. It's not a moment. It's a movement. And there are a lot of things that you need to do, that you need to read, that you need to watch. You need to watch 13th. You need to watch The Jim Crow. You need to read The House That Race Built by Mm Toni Morrison. Um, And also you need to read The Black Manifesto in Jazz by Todd Jones. Mm -hmm. Ted Jones, sorry. That is something I've been reading at the minute and it's really fucking important for me to read and to know that it is not fucking for me, but that I want to read it because it's fucking beautiful and powerful and yeah we need to just make sure that we're keeping our eyes open you know the world hasn't got more racist it's just being caught on camera more yeah Yeah. and yeah just actively work as white people whatever our roles whatever our jobs to have those uncomfortable conversations and also to rest to rest and to support our our black folks in in resting yeah and giving them time to to speak about other things, you know, it's it's not, I'm organizing an art auction at the minute, an affordable art auction, where every single penny, apart from the postage to the people that bid for the artworks, will be sent 50% to Save Sister, the Save Sister Space Fund yeah. um, in Hackney, which is a center for um, Afro-Caribbean black women and girls to go to and support them in leaving domestic violence and support Amazing. them in their needs. It's a sanctuary. Yeah. And they're being evicted. So we're raising money to support that cause. And the other 50% of all the money will go to Black Minds Matter, yeah. who are a UK organization working to provide three fer- three free therapy yeah. for black people. Um, so yeah, if you want to get involved with that or bid, so we'll, your Instagram handle will be on our Instagram. Um, yeah, so if sure. people click on that, then they can see what they can see that, can't they? And there'll be a yeah. link to, to check it out. And also just yeah. donate, 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 donate. But yeah. yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been so nice to chat thank to you. About. No, been thank you so very much for coming lovely. on. It's been lovely. Been, yeah. you've been, I knew you'd be amazing. As amazing, if not more, than I knew that you would be. You have such a way with words and a way of expressing yourself that I like. It'd be great if you could take out all the bits where I go like this. Uh, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that. No worries. And at the end, can I do a really evil laugh with an effect on where it's like, ho, 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 ho. 
Yeah, go on then. Do I'm it. Do, yeah, yeah. Eat the rich. <laughs> oh, I need to have my dinner. It's potatoes. Yeah, you so do. Tell you to, you've been amazing. I'll speak to you soon, Cassie. Love you. you bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Enjoy. What a lovely conversation that was. Brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> um, I all every time I I have spent so much time with Jazz, and every time I speak to her, I learn something new either about her or about stuff that I think about quite a lot. So yeah, definitely. Like that's been educational and enjoyable. One hundred percent. And if you want, to, yeah, if people want to find out more about like jazz's work about wednesday's child mm-hmm. um we'll, and her you know, art auction as well yeah there's a link on our instagram um each person who comes on you can see their instagram and also the projects that they're involved in so yeah. if you if that um art auction if you would like to buy or participate there's a link to be able to do that as well wicked um so we're gonna have a a little break we've cost we've done six seasons <laughs> six seasons <laughs> we wish six episodes um we're gonna have a little break next week aren't we yeah we're going well we're going on separate holidays aren't we yeah we're not going together but we're going Which yeah, is for, sad. for little mini breaks <laughs> yeah um so you can have a mini break we can have a mini break and then yeah. we'll be back and then we'll be back the week after and i suppose this is a good chance to we always write it in the description but um Shout out to Manuka Honeys who do our title mm-hmm. music. Uh, the song's called So Kind. A lot of people have asked me about that. Mm-hmm. And also a big thanks to Ellie Judd as well, who's been doing our artwork since today. Pretty much on demand as well. Yeah, yeah. never. And <laughs> She's we, brilliant. We do leave it very last minute sometimes. <laughs> so yeah, thanks, Ellie. Um, well, um, I'll speak to you in two weeks then, Sam, won't yeah. I? Yeah, have a nice break. Yeah, you too. We've earned it, I think, haven't we? Yeah, we definitely have. Yes, we have. Perfect. Right. Right, See you soon. Bye. Bye.